Gaming and BS episode 151, coming to you August 1st, 2017. That's really low. Here, let me turn that up for some reason. Welcome to Gaming and BS, the tabletop RPG podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Sean. And I'm Brett, and I'm mostly awake. Welcome to the show. How you doing? I was napping before this, Sean. My old man syndrome apparently kicked in. I don't know what the hell happened there, but crashed out. Yeah, you know, you get it's for Sunday. riding motorcycle in the sun and being lazy Sunday, and I mowed the lawn. And don't yeah. you have kids? Why I do. You... Like, I would never mow the lawn. That's like that's why I'd have kids. That's not <laughs> it's a like... thing. Yeah, the problem is AJ is too small to push the mower, and Connor has like a real job he's working right now. So, <sighs> I'm stuck with it. Brother. I know. What about, what about the wife? She's out doing uh, photos um, that she's doing for a senior uh, photo thing. Sounds like everybody's having a better time than you, Brett, except for that gaming piece. Except for the gaming piece, yes, because I got to play Lamentation, ran Lamentations of Flame Princess, my game on Friday. And then Saturday That's was right. an awesome DCC session of my campaign for that. So, it's going to be, it's, uh, that was a lot of fun. I think that one's got about one, I think one more session left in it. Then uh, blow up the world or something. Oh, so uh, how was yours? Anything good? Did you game? I I gamed on Thursday night. JJ Lanza wanted to run a playtest of his DCC module that he's putting down uh, with inspiration from the rock group Rush, their twenty one twelve album. So you can imagine what that's all about. Very nice. Yes, I played Tubber, Number, Tubber, Nubber, Wubber, and Pubber. They're all twins, if They're you can believe that. Two, two, two sets of twins. That's great. Yeah. <laughs> uh, with Mr. Sneezak. Yeah. At the Light 101 from Encoded Designs, Misdirected Mark Fame, and the, the editor of Hobbs and Friends. And yeah. What else can I tell say about that guy? Oh, it's then, nothing but good, nothing but good stuff, of course. Well, and then he's like down with D and D. Absolutely. And, I don't know. He's doing all kinds of stuff. And then uh, Mr. Phil Vecchione um, was part of that too. That's awesome. Phil's been uh, talking about getting into DCC for a while, and you know we had, uh, we've had, I think we've turned a couple listeners on to DCC as well after chatting about it for a while. It's a hell of a fun time. I had, I don't, <laughs> we had a lot of laughs. It was serious fun. But there was a lot of laughs at this last game we, uh, with some of the craziness from the uh, spell casting that Beta was trying to pull off. We had a weird multi-level marketing scam going, or scheme, I should say, with the uh, clerics of Cthulhu. The one priest of Cthulhu has been slowly trying to convert everybody else, and by doing so to alleviate all the disfavor that he's earned with his deity. <laughs> it's like this weird internal multi-level marketing ploy, a pyramid scheme that's going on within the party. So that's a, that's a, that's a hoot, actually. Yeah, All right. good times. So let's see here. Announcements. Let's see. Do, 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 do. I will be Avalon Kickstarter stuff. We're still got contract stuff from Chris. Got to look that over. I think we should be in pretty good shape. The latest episode of um, Streets of Avalon was out not that long ago. I think we have a couple more of those left. Uh, and then that story arc is done. So I'm hoping we can get this uh, Kickstarter rolling Around about that same time, that'd be pretty cool. 
Um, we still have, we still want to, uh, zip zaps t-shirts just in case you forgot about it last time. That's still out there. Um, so that's really cool. And once again, thank you, Ray Otis. That's just so fucking awesome. And Sean, what do we got? Anything new in the uh, game hole submissions? We've had uh, a lot of cool stuff. Not that I'm aware of. There could have been, but I don't know. Oh, so I know something you don't know. Chad Knight, Chad Knight, one of my gamers in my home crew, is going to run a, uh, a board game or two under our banner. He so is, that he, is that is he submitted it yet, or we talked yes, about said, it last episode? Yeah, he said he submitted it, so it should be should be out there. Did he say which one? No, or he did, and I was in the throes of raging and doing whatever it was while I was running. But I don't remember what board game it was offhand. Damn it. He said it to me like in passing. Oh, that board game I was going to do. Yeah, I got that in, and it's blah. And then we got swept away by the rest of the game. So anyway, board game. We are going to ha- I think we're going to formalize the Friday night beer exchange. We'll have to put that out there. Okay. Um, so formalizing that. All right. Yeah, we will we will officially say that we are going to have a beer exchange, which is not the same as the free beer keg. Which is not to be mistaken for the Saturday night free beer, which is listed in the event so it's zero dollars. Make sure you go to gameholecon.com forward slash events. And I don't know, I guess you pick up a ticket, but it, it's zero dollars. There's a hundred of them. Um, yeah. I don't know why. I don't know why they put it in the program this year, but maybe that's they wanted to formalize it. I don't know. Hey, it's fine by me. More people, more fun. All good. Yes. Anything else in the way of announcements? Anything cool, new, interesting? No? Yes? Nope. Nothing Nothing that we can't get to in the end of, near the end of this episode. Well, let's get into Random Encounter then. All right, Random Encounter. Oh, that was really loud. <laughs> Jesus. There's no mid- middle in here there. Uh, all right, Random Encounter, Brett. Uh, this is where we talk about emails, voicemails, comments from social media, all random encounters. Yeah, these are almost all about, uh, I shouldn't say all of them. The first couple here, I think, are all on the Mega Dungeons, episode 150. So I will start with Mr. Stefan Dragonspawns. Mega Dungeons may cause GM burnout. I'd like Sean to read this in his best, worst East European oh. accent. Why? Just to make Brett cringe. Love you, Brett. So I'm going to tag out. Sean, over to you. Hello, again, you sexy BSers. I want to chime in about the Mega Dungeon episode. The only big dungeon module I ever ran my players through was City of the Spider Queen. My good friend, Daryl, bought it for me for my birthday one year, saying he wanted me to run this for the group. This is when D&D 3.5 was new and his own character was a draw wizard. I agreed and eventually wove into the story. I remember all the work I had to put in because my players worked well together and encounters in the book were woefully underpowered if I were to leave them as they were. The mega dungeon part was different than the undermountain product in that the caves, settlements, encounters were spread out in a very wide area of the Underdark, which made it a little railroady. Cue the train sound effects, please, Sean. Cue sound effects, trains, Sean, please. (laughs) 
But the players were okay with it, accepting it as part of the environment, and I made sure the scenery was nice, as Brett often puts it. In many encounters, I was able to personalize them to the group, such as the Draw Wizard meeting his former arcane teacher at the Inverted Tower or negotiate their way through an encounter with stone giants. I think my favorite encounter was in a semicircular chamber where the ceiling was over 300 feet. I don't understand 300 feet. Meters? How many meters is that? <laughs> above a and A lot. And to above and to continue forward, they had to ascend almost to the top after having dealt with the shadow dragon laring there. So instead of laying a map flat on a table, which wasn't nearly long enough, I taped many large grid papers together, drew out the cave, one square equals five feet, I don't understand feet, and taped the whole thing to the nearest bare wall. I was very close to the ceiling, too. I cut home, uh, cut out some flats, figure flats for the PCs, one for the dragon, and used that blue poster putty to affix where everyone was each round. It was quite a different experience, and it was an exercise in thinking three-dimensionally. But by the time the PCs reached the big bad evil priestess, which, again, I had to bump up and make sure she used all her advantages, finally defeating her and returning to Raven's Bluff, their home, I was burnt out and needed a break. Preparing for each session when PCs are level 15 plus is exhausting. But I think a big part of what that was the D20 system itself. Writing up the characters that have levels like the PCs is very time-consuming as opposed to using a CR 15 plus creature from one of the many monster manuals. But even then, such creatures often have access to many feats, powers, and spells as well as having special attacks and defenses. So I have run a mega dungeon but would be leery of doing so again. I run with the Savage Worlds rule system now almost exclusively, which reduces my prep time considerably and maximizes my fun. Thinking outside the boxed set of the traditional fantasy theme, plot point campaigns can be mega dungeons too. PPCs like the Flood for Deadlands and Scientorium for the last parsec are meant to last for a long time with many different encounters, different kinds of encounters, and they also allow the story to be broken up and used here and there as the campaign progresses. <sighs> GMs can introduce other stories and then come back to the PPC when it suits their story again. Anyway, time to wrap this up and allow you boys to go back to bed. I've rambled almost as much as my friend from down under, Pure Mongrel. And congratulations on your 150th episode. I lift a flask to 150 more. Das vidanya, comrades. <laughs> well done. I wasn't sure you were going to be able to keep it up. Whew, I'm, a, you know, I'm a professional, Brett. Profe absolutely. Professional, as they say, over on uh, Pandas Talking Games. Anyway... Mm. Yeah, the Mega Dungeons and the Burnout. You know, I hadn't thought about that aspect, but I think uh, Stefan's got a good point. Even if you don't think D20 and you get past the the uh, <clears throat> the prep and so forth, even if the players are having a really good time, if you sign up to do a Mega Dungeon and uh, say, hey, I'm going to go do this big goddamn thing and then come to find out halfway through, like, wow, I, as Game Master, am really bored with this. I'd really like to do something different. Or you're just plain tired of it. 
whatever the reason for the burnout, that's it is perhaps depending on how on how it works, it might be harder to yank the players out of that particular scenario and thrust them into something else, right? If you're above ground, um, in the traditional dungeon sense, you could have them, you know, driven out of a city. You could have all sorts of things happen. But sometimes when you're in the middle of the dungeon, it feels like you're almost trapped in that space. And uh, I could definitely see some burnout issues happening there. That's good stuff, Stefan. Thank you. It's very good stuff. Thank you, Stefan. You can stop now. All right. Okay. <laughs> Grimfan writes in, says, I played Castle Greyhawk, which was fun, though we never did reach the bottom of it. It wasn't the only thing we did in the campaign. I also played Return of the Keep on the Borderlands, followed by a retooled In Search of the Unknown. They're not really mega dungeons exactly, but we handled it in a mega dungeon kind of way. I agree that mega dungeons can get way old if not handled carefully. If you guys cite Fritz Lieber's Quarmall, and there are many other story examples, at least in part. One is Michael Moorcock's Gloriana. I've not read that one. I should probably look, read that. Uh, which has this sprawling palace the size of a town with bizarre things on the walls and hints of even more bizarre things even deeper. As an example of how one could have a mega dungeon embedded in a very political game and make for a fantastic 7C or swashbuckling type of setting. Oh, for sci-fi, you really have to have the mecha dungeon. You know, Crimfan, when you mention Michael Moorcock's The Sprawling Palace, that reminds me of Red Nails, the um, amazing story by, at least amazing to me because I like Robert E. Howard, I like the Conan stuff. Um, one of his last that he wrote... Um, where Valeria of the Red Brotherhood is in there, and they're stuck in this city. They're driven into the city by a dragon from the outside. They go there because they have no other place to go, and they end up inside the city. The whole thing takes place uh, within these walls and and, uh, catacombs and passages and hallways and all that stuff. It's basically the entire, I shouldn't say the entire, 90% of the story anyway, is uh, in a mega dungeon, but it's a city, just the city that happens to be built like one massive palace that with ceilings and everything so that's another good example thank you Krimpen. over to you sir jared rasher i love the stories of the pathfinder adventure pass and the dungeon ap's before them but there was always at least one dungeon in each of them that was too long for my patience as a dm part of that was because the dungeons had to be big enough to provide enough xp to get the next expected level of the ap and to provide the appropriate treasure On the other hand, my players almost always found a way to shortcut to the end of the dungeon and shoot themselves in the foot in the long run because they went into the next adventure lower level than expected and with less loot. Aw, bom bom bom. Womp (laughs) Those, of course, aren't even mega dungeons, just big, ponderous dungeons. The only real mega dungeon I've used is Undermountain. I set a ton of campaigns in Waterdeep over the years, and I've had a lot of adventures wander into Undermountain. I think the context of Undermountain makes it more utilitarian than it might be otherwise. Going into Undermountain is a bragging point for adventurers in the realms. In my campaigns, it was always a side quest destination that the players would do when they didn't want to follow up on my plot hooks. Additionally, not only is there the casual entry point and the bragging rights, the third level, at least back in the day, not only was Skullport a whole other city for the PCs to visit, if a bit more dangerous than Waterdeep above, but the Promenade, a temple to Elistray. Elistray? Elistray. Yes. Yeah. Uh, the Drow, goddess of redemption. So PCs might have a spot to take a breather and get some healing as a break from the rest of the level. 
On top of all that, having a crazy wizard that was intentionally maintaining the dungeon for his own amusement helped to explain why those hordes didn't spill over into the city and why weird things would keep showing up no matter how many you mowed down. I think that's the key to making a mega dungeon usable. If it's got some spots that let the players get off of the ride for a while and do something else, I think it's got more longevity than if they are expected to go in and live their most of their careers. I own Eyes of the Stone Thief, the mega dungeon created for 13th Age, but I have yet to read through it. I'm really interested to see how that system handles a mega dungeon given the way it likes to add in more story-based elements to a standard D20 fantasy game. Cool. I think that is I think that concept of getting off the ride is what <coughs> Sean and I were trying to get to with the political intrigue or saying hey this is where the dwarves are this is the where the drow are this is where this group of people on in the underdark are that you can interact with hang out with and almost have a regular city type of thing running npcs and all that good stuff but i think that's a damn good point letting you in and out there is there's something that he said there about under mountains like a, it's a bragging point for adventures and so on in the realms um i know other other old school settings have had this, but I know, at least I distinctly remember it in the realms being like adventuring companies and being a group of adventurers was like a legitimate or like semi-legitimate thing you could do as far as you weren't like just thrust into a thing or whatever, but people would like bands of adventurers, like, oh, adventurers are in town. Or this was, the, you know, economies would build up around the fact that there were adventurers. I think that's, and just having things like that, it's... um that are just badges of honor to say, hey, I've been to this tomb or been to the, you know, Karak Noor and fought the whatever there. I think that's kind of cool. Something about that's neat. Anyway, Michael Parker. First of all, thank you so much for the mention of my podcast. You're awesome. Michael, dude, of course, man. Admittedly, I've never run or played in a Mega Dungeon, so I'm not to be considered an authority on the subject, though. As far as Mega Dungeons go, I think the most important thing to consider, especially when the campaign is centered, isn't centered around it, is to ensure its existence makes sense. There's nothing worse than some arbitrarily large, trap-ridden underground labyrinth that is just there. It was uh, alluded to briefly, and I would almost consider it any Mega Dungeon, excuse me, any Mega City urban campaign, think Avalon or Lankmar, a sort of Mega Dungeon. With that in mind, maybe a good way to make one interesting outside of just a big dungeon crawl is to take cues from running urban campaigns, political jockeying, neighborhood conflicts, etc. Thanks again, guys. Yeah, Michael, I think that's a good point, and a few other folks above us have already, above you that we've read here, have already echoed that, that idea of the political intrigue and pieces that are more than just, uh, you know, 10 by 10 corridors or guarding a pie. Make it a little bit something more, makes it a hell of a lot more interesting. Cleanses the palate. Yeah, I would agree, and I get where Michael's coming from because I would, uh, you know, why is this thing here? Why am I going in there? Why is it? Why would I go in there? Because it's dangerous. At the same time, uh, there's so many things that don't make sense. Adventures, <laughs> adventures are psychotic. What's you know, in there? And, I don't know. I think there's small dog-like demon things that bite your face off. I'm going in. Yeah, count me in. I don't know. But it's, yes, very good point. You got to kind of make it richer. Unless you're truly like, hey, I'm going to go in old school style and I'm just going to clean it out. And then the de- as a matter of fact, I don't know if we got into it in that episode, but, you know, as you pro- 
while you go down in levels, the harder the creatures are. So it was always kind of yeah level you, based, right? Yeah. Yeah, you're down five levels in a dungeon. Shit's harder. I mean, there's no more goblins and kobolds, man. It's right nasty, nasty down there. Yeah, they used to be the the old school dungeon building 101. You you start out, it's not that big a deal. And the deeper you go, the crazier it gets. Absolutely. All right, back to you, sir. Oh, it is. It is. Shane Freeman, in reference to Mega Dungeons, so there's a city in our campaign world called the City Grave, which is, you guessed it, a graveyard about 30 miles across, wow, in a sinking pit of chaos and rot. That is a big graveyard. During the day, it is tended by mutant thralls of the Lich and vampire lords that rule over different factions of the crater. At night, it slithers and crawls with unspeakable horrors that ooze and writhe up from the labyrinth of tombs that stretch deep into the ground. The outer ring of the city looks and feels much like a normal massive graveyard, but as you move farther down to the center of the creatures, get more gruesome, Excuse me, and the political struggles between the undead lords become more complex. When you combine this with the maze of underground tunnels connecting various tombs, the arcane libraries, and the gladiatorial arena, arena where all manner of monstrous things battle for blood and life energy, I think it begins to qualify as a mega dungeon. Yeah, I sure. Yeah, no, that's that's a good point. Yeah, that's a big 30 miles across, man. Sinking pit. <laughs> that's freaking gigantic. That's, that's pretty mega. So we also had Larry Hollis commented, uh, this BS flag is for you, Mr. Sean P. Kelly. Well, Tolis is a massive amount of material for adventuring within the city of Tolis proper. When you look at the side view of the city by the spire, you'll see a mega dungeon. Inside you'll find not one, but two complete cities, one abandoned by dwarves and the other the home of Dark Elves. There's a labyrinth to be found, the Bane Wardens in a prison still in use. If this isn't a mega dungeon, then I clearly don't know the meaning of the word. I've attached a copy of the side view of the city for your consideration. And uh, in the uh, in the post, he did have that indeed have that out there. That was did. pretty cool. Yeah, slipped my mind, of course. And of course, I think Sharn, the City of Towers, probably has something similar when you get down into the depths. You know, yeah. anything under a big city. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. There is one other one. I want to make sure Dan Dome Domi had uh, put something out there. I want to make sure I grab that as well. So let me find that real quick. Dan was one of the inspirations for us having the conversation. And uh, when it had gone up, when the episode had posted, he had tagged us on this sucker. Oh, for God's sake, I'm going to hurry up here and find this thing. Where is it? Where is it? Where is it? Ah, yes. He said, uh, wow, it's so very cool to hear my name at the top of the main topic for episode 150, Mega Dungeons, but wanted to elaborate on a game I'm running since they put a personal spin on it. The whole thing started because I had collected a number of Mega Dungeon books. They're generally well regarded. Anomalous subsurface environments, Barrow Maze, Dwemer Mount, Rappanathok, Stone Hell, and the absolutely fantastic Maze of the Blue Medusa. So if you go into our community, he's got some really good stuff that he has attached in that. We can put a link in the show notes for that. The other thing I think that he had said in a different post that I really want to call out was he uh, defined Mega Dungeons a self contained campaign, or at least the potential to be a self-contained campaign. Um, basically, Dan was calling us on the fact that we seem to 
have a hard time defining what a mega dungeon was, and I think uh, we did struggle a little bit with it. Uh, but the concept of it being a self-contained campaign does uh, does seem to that rings. I like that. I think that's a good way to look at it. If not specifically self-contained for your group, the potential that it could indeed be such is pretty damn cool. Yeah. Yeah. It does absolutely. sound pretty damn cool. Indeed it does. Shall we away? We shall. All right, Brett. Main topic tonight, we're talking about... We're going to talk about some NPCs. And so here's the deal. I was thinking about this after running a couple games and just thinking about the games I was going to be running, doing some of that mental prep before you you show up to the session. And I like to have... We've talked about different ways to have, like, cool NPCs, you know, have the funny voices, physical ticks or tells and so on. But I think it's important that NPCs... There's more to it than them just being entertainment. Like, oh, it's cool because this person, you know, speaks with a lisp, or this person has a southern accent, or this person, um, you know, fiddles with their hat brim every time they talk to you, and that's how we recognize them. Apart from those components, I think there's some really... I think there's some things that are important that by making sure your NPCs um, have some of these interesting building blocks to them that you can really help from a Game Master perspective flesh things out. And I thought about this because as I blow out different worlds, expanding things and so forth, and I want to introduce information to my player characters, it's usually done through an NPC. Sometimes they'll find a book or a map or something along those lines that gives them some detail. But a lot of times they're investigating something or trying to find information, investigating in that fashion, and they have to talk to somebody. And that somebody then gives them info. And the way that they present that info is incredibly important. So, Sean, am I, you, you following me on that one, or am I off base? You got you, you at least tracking with what I'm talking about? Um, Maybe. NPC, NPCs got it. Okay. <laughs> so here, here's, here's, the, here's my thought, <clears throat> is that when you have an NPC, the way that they present the information, um, you know, whether it's funny voices, physical tics, so on, um, that information that they give to the player characters informs the PCs about culture, beliefs, or values. Perhaps the culture, beliefs, and values of the person themselves, or the place they're from, or the place you're currently in, or a place you're going to. So it's all world-building stuff. <clears throat> it helps to expand that world by making it more real, by providing it those that flavor text that you can grab onto. And uh, it allows you to give some hints and clues as to places that either the pieces you're going to, you might want to poke them in a direction of like, hey, there is, <clears throat> oh, yeah, says the dwarf, the that has to do with, you know, the mountains to the north, but no one goes up to Karaknor anymore. Why? Why would you go to Karaknor? It's a, it's a throwaway statement, but it's a bit of culture around the dwarves. Oh, that's cursed, you know, it's an old, you know, platinum mine, and it, you know, beholders took it over, or whatever the fucking problem is. But when you have P- NPCs with information they're handing it out, apart from not only just the, oh yeah, you go to so-and-so, you talk to them, and they tell you that you know, the Lich King is found in the Great Desert to the West. Okay, neat. That That's fun. But having him tell you more information, oh, the Great Desert to the West, that's where the Sulawese Empire was, and that's where the Reign of Colorless Fire destroyed all this stuff. And there's still remnants of their ruined cities out there, but somewhere deep within 
it's that taking it from just a raw data transfer and having the NPC do it in an interesting way, um, even if it's not, even if it's more mundane as what I just did, saying, oh, he informed the, you know, the traveler you're speaking to says, that's in the desert to the west, where the reign of colorless fire was, the Sulu's empire, where uh, this horrible thing happened, and there's ancient ruins, and blah, 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 blah. That lays out a bunch of things for the player characters to be aware of and to think about when they're looking around and mucking about heading to the lure of this ancient Lich King. Um, <clears throat> as opposed to just saying, oh yes, it's west of here in a desert. Now, I don't think a lot of people necessarily do it that blandly, but, and maybe this is a quick esoteric topic, Sean, but I, I, it was interesting to me when I started thinking about why I want to add as much color as I can to those pieces. And for me, it generally comes down to wanting to enrich the world through that narrative because that NPC then becomes, it's a, it's a way for me to get info across without it being GM fiat all the time. You know what I'm saying? I do see what you're saying. Do you do that? Or do you just read from the box text and fuck them? <laughs> My PCs are something else, Brett. Yeah. Are NPCs or PCs? Which one? Uh, both. <laughs> yeah, but in this case, we'll focus on the NPC piece. Yeah, man, I love NPCs. Love them. Everybody's got a name. Everybody's got a personality. Everybody's got a motive. Everybody's got a story, Brett. Everybody's got a story. So when you're doing that, are you are you doing it simply for the entertainment value, or are you thinking about it from a, this is a way to en- enhance and enrich, or is it all kind of part and parcel for you? Yes. Yes. Yes, that's my answer. Yes, it's all uh, D, all of the above. All of the above, okay. I think it's they can go hand in hand, and typically they do. I may not always have the full story or full background, and it may not even be relevant, even if I did. But I think NPCs, you're right, it fleshes out things. They can bring culture to the game. Um, I don't think... I don't know if there is a ton of value in some games because I think some people just don't look at them that way. And then there are some people that probably take it over the top. Mm -hmm. So they get into it way too too much and maybe not even be relevant. But back in the day, because that's, you know. That's where we live. Right. Back in the day is where we live. We didn't get into that much stuff. You know, it was... Uh, Is that back when NPCs were just juicy sacks of experience points waiting to be squeezed? Mostly rumors and oh. XP, yes. Rumors, the barmaid, the bartender, end keeper, yep. maybe the blacksmith. But they didn't have any personality or, you know, their world... It's like a video game, right? The blacksmith is... Hammering on the anvil, clink, 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 and that's all they do. Yeah. There's nothing more to them. You go there to get horseshoes and maybe a weapon forged or fixed. That's it, like single dimension. I think you don't necessarily, the other cool thing for me is when you do have players that are into, especially if you have the bards or the people that are very skill-based, when I say skill-based, I should say social skill-based, where they're very social um, they want to interact with people. They want to use their different skills to bargain or barter or buying things even. And 
when you give a little tweak of personality, a haughty city guard, that person is going to approach it different than a shy aristocrat or a proud guildmaster or, you know, a sly elf or something along those lines or, you know, a person from Alpha Centauri or whatever. Um, they're going to be approached differently if you give them a bit of personality. And sometimes the personality is just how they approach the PCs. You know, if that blacksmith is guarded because the last adventuring group that came through cheated him, and he's kind of a stickler on payment up front and terms and conditions and so forth, and it just it, it helps to color how they interact. And I think there, what you when you mentioned going overboard, you can have a really long, drawn out, obnoxious discussion about the fruit vendor selling apples. <laughs> right? It can get really crazy. But having somebody have two, three, even five minutes of quick back-and-forth dialogue, making it relevant to the scenario. So in this case, you're talking to the blacksmith. You want to get your shield mended. He's very weary about something um, because the last adventurers were here that she screwed him over, didn't pay him up front, took the shield, only paid a quarter of it, and then she disappeared, probably got eaten by goblins. You're like, wait a minute, got eaten by goblins? Yeah, there's a goblin cave outside of town. Oh, is that where they were going? Yeah, there's there you know there's a bounty on goblins. Don't you know that? Aren't you guys adventurers? Those types of things where the conversation with the NPCs, it's not like oh he's quirky and he's kind of got a tick and he doesn't like adventures. He drops the clue bomb right. <laughs> he throws that plot hook and just kind of starts just jigging with it to say hey who's going to bite that one, um, and see if anybody cares. When you're talking to the fruit vendor. And that person said, oh, yeah, here's an apple and so on and so forth. Boy, it's it's really tough to get fresh fruit because of the ant kegs. What? Yeah, there's ant kegs. They're eating all the apple trees. Oh, good to know. Uh, it's kind of, uh, <laughs> to your point on the video game, sometimes it's talking to the NPCs to find quests. But when those NPCs have bits of information around, you know, why something's happening or, again, rumors, but dropping them instead of just saying, yeah, and they tell you a rumor about... And kegs eating apple trees, or they tell you a rumor about a goblin cave. If you add the other components to it, it becomes more interesting, and then they want to pull it out of them more than just going up, you know, put their money, you know, double click on the blacksmith and see what he tells them. Next, 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 next. Good goblins. Next, I got my, I got my clue. Make sense? Well, yeah, it does. And the one thing about getting too much into detail, a uh, perfect example is some of the campaign uh, arcs that Paizo puts out. Great. Awesome stuff. Lots of details. Yeah, where, where the blacksmith has a page and a half of backstory. Like, I don't need that. Why did you do that? Yeah, it's really great. Um, and much of it may not even come into play, which I think is what I'm trying to draw the line at. Is it's okay to have an NPC and have some, uh, you know, brief kind of picture in your brain of what motivations they have or what they're doing what things they may know uh, that they can convey to the party, like Brett mentioned. But at the same time, man, if there's history there and it's never going to come out, it's, it's, you're probably, yeah, you're probably overthinking it too much. And maybe you're just that type of uh, player or game master that likes to do that and keep it in the back of your hat and back of your mind in case it ever does come out totally get it um i just found like 
wow, that is a lot of stuff. Can you put it in like two or three sentences? Yeah, I, I'm become more and more of a fan of the bullet point list. Like, you know, uh, proud guild master doesn't like adventures because they cheated him, knows about the goblin caves. Oh, okay, that's enough to work with. If I do feel that I would need to write a, a massive backstory for all my NPCs, as GM then, I need to thicken my skin to the fact that the player characters probably will never delve into all of that. Right. It's, it's good to have if you think, oh, but if they get to know this person, she actually has this amazing backstory because she's the only person who's been to this planet. And if the players ever find that out, it'll be really interesting. Yeah, it will be if they ever find it out. But you have to give them a reason to find it out because, as I've said, the truth is at the table. And if it doesn't come out at the table, it's not that it's no good. That's a harsh statement. But it's not advancing the story because no one's doing anything with it. It's not. It's no longer a playing piece, right? It's not helping the players do anything or the game master do anything, really, because no one's playing with that piece of data. So I think it's funny, but when you start trying to you know pull out your zip zaps and roll your own adventure and you uh and you look at one of those modules or those adventure paths you're like oh i should use that as a um as a guide for like hey here's a good way i like that adventure path and you start looking at it it looks terribly daunting when you see this great depth around npcs all of them or so many of them anyway um it may look like, I don't know if I can do this. It's so much work. And, oh, my God, I can't be this creative. And blah. You don't have to. You can cut it down to two, three, five, half a dozen bullet points at most, enough to kind of get you rolling. You know, just think think very minimalist, and then you can usually work work it from there. So I guess where, I, where I'm going with that one is don't, don't, don't necessarily look at some of the published stuff as, like, the gold standard. Use what you need to use. If you go through that published one, if you're – like a Chris Nizak, you don't mind writing in your books. It freaks me out. But <laughs> if you if you look at it and say you know, highlight or underscore or whatever, just the stuff you think is important in one of those paragraphs or multiple pages of of a person's backstory, you go, wow, there's actually six things here that are actually relevant that I would use. Again, that's really all you need to make sure that's interesting and that they have information that can help push the plot forward in one way or another. Yes. You're so helpful. <laughs> now, there's some people that are gonna eat that shit up, and they love that stuff, which is great, fine, dandy. You will be, you know, probably better versed, well versed in what you're going to be portraying to your players. And if for some reason there tends to be a curveball that gets thrown at you, you'll probably be maybe even better prepared to handle that. But um, yeah. There's now, one just of the things a that, lot of detail in some of those. Like there wow. is. Oh, yeah. and, and when you said there, some people eat it up. I was chatting with some of my gamers in my hometown, and there's a because we're more of a gaming club now than just like one group because there's a bunch of us. And we meet at different times and play different things. And my one buddy Nick was talking about how um, when he's playing in the smaller campaign and Zava's DMing. Some of the detail is just so really great and really cool. It's really refreshing and whatever. And he said, you do some of that, but you don't do as much. And I'm like, huh, I wonder, if should I do more or whatever? And we talked about it over pizza, over lunch. And he said, you know what? I don't think you can. And I said, you mean I can't? He goes, no, it's not that you physically can't. It's that he said there's eight of us at the table. He said if two of us are having dinner, he said for you to spend 15 minutes having a dinner conversation with us, 
He said, that's too much. He said, there's other people going to be like, you know, fingers on the table going, come on, come on, come on, come on, come on, you know, to keep us the size of the group and their interest. If the whole group is involved, he pointed out, when all eight of them are doing something at once and there's more detail and it's feeding into everything, they're having a big council with a king or they're talking to, you know, the, some, you know, street thug or something in Chicago. They're all chatting with this person trying to figure something out. They all get into it and they eat that up. Um, but it is difficult to have uber detail with someone who's trying to talk to the blacksmith about getting their shield mended and the goblin thing if the rest of the party's like, come on, 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 because they have no interest in going to the blacksmith. They want to go talk to the sage. They want to go talk to the inn. They want to go get rooms at the inn. Somebody else needs to do something else. So that's where I started thinking more in my bullet point approach to grab onto some stuff, have some interesting components to an NPC dump some good plot hooks and info and then be able to quickly move on to the next person. Because with even four or five people, it gets harder to have in-depth one-on-one conversations while everybody else watches because it's really fucking boring. Well, that's something that has to come up when you're about to run a game. You inherently have to tell everybody, hey, 20 players, <laughs> uh, you know, you're going to want to do stuff and everything's going to be have to be hand-waved or we're never going to get anything done or everybody, you know, by the time I get to somebody else to give them spotlight, it's going to be three weeks from now. Yeah. That, that's, so that goes into game size, like t- group size, which I know this isn't about, but that plays a role within how you run your game. Like you cannot run a 20-person game the same, same way you can run a four-person game. Just not you can, but it's gonna be crappy. Yeah, it's it's it does take a different set of skills, right? <laughs> or a different approach, not a different set of skills, but a different approach, right. definitely. Yeah, because I think um, comfort level one. But I, I think that's where what I'm getting at some is people, that people some people love that talky talk shit. Man, they will go an entire adventure and just have a dialogue with a non-player character. And if you get that person in your group, and you got ten players, and they don't get talky talk time. They may be like, hey, man, what's up with that? Yeah, exactly. Wow, that was boring as all hell. Thank you. I listened to Sean Ramblon with uh, this other person. That was great. We learned a whole bunch of stuff about potting soil. We don't give a fuck about potting soil. Could we please move on to the horrible blob from outer space that's eating people, you know, or whatever the there's real problem one, is. There's going to be one guy at the table that loves to talk about that potting soil. Yeah, goddamn gardeners. Um... <laughs> That's one of those player character classes that never took off. Um, but I think it is important to, when you're thinking about this, because we're not just talking, oh, say, so the on the surface, like, hey, make sure NPCs are kind of cool and that they've got info and they're delivering information. There, there are mechanisms for you to deliver culture, beliefs, values, re- realism to the world, clues in places, all that stuff. But the next layer, I think you hit it there, is the how deep you can go with that is what your group is willing to tolerate, what you are able or willing to put up with yourself as the game master. And um, size is another component of it. Because if you do have, back in my heyday when I had you know, 12, 13 players and vampires basically turned into like a mini LARP, it becomes very difficult for the game master to always be stuck with a, you know two people having a very in-depth conversation for a half an hour um, while the rest of the group is waiting their turn. That's kind of not fun. So there is a speed factor 
that may come into play, making it even more imperative that while the piece, the NPC has some cool quirks or uh, an approach to make sure the data comes out, you may have to, instead of verbalizing it, quote-unquote acting or pantomiming it out, you may have to use saying, this person, they seem very nervous, they stutter all the time after a very in-depth, conver- you know, very trying conversation of getting them to calm down, relax, and speak slowly, you're able to find out that, yes, the man in the black hat your Cthulhu investigators have been looking for did come down the alleyway, scared the crap out of this poor little paper boy, and, uh, yeah, he's down there at the speakeasy. There, you had all those components to it. The data came across, the terrified paper boy. Maybe someone goes, well, I give him, I give him a quarter and tell him to go get himself a beer or whatever, <laughs> whatever it is you do in the 20s. Um, but that's, that's one way to do that where you're kind of hand-wavy to a point but you're still doing something interesting with an NPC as opposed to just pointing down the street and saying he's there. Like that's a good that's a good piece I hadn't thought about that. But yeah, size of the group does necessitate a level of expediency so that you don't bore the living hell out of everybody else at the table. Yeah. It's like that shopping trip, right? When they want to, somebody wants to go and shop for a longsword. Right. And they go and they want to interact with every Every swordsmith in Waterdeep. Are you fucking kidding me? That can be fun if there's two of you, right? If there's you and two players. If there's two players they want to go on a big shopping trip, you can actually have some fun with that. Because if they're into that, both of them, you got two peas in a pod and they love gaming like this, that couple can go and hit all the stalls and have all these great interactions. It might be the best damn night of their life from a gaming perspective. But I almost guarantee you, once you get four, five, six, or more people, there's going to be a chunk of them that don't give a rat's ass about that approach. And they want to be able to hand wavy and move on. Yeah. Interesting. Is there anything else, Sean, for NPCs? We've talked about, like I said earlier, we've had the voices episode and, you know, talked about physical ticks and, you know, the funny voices and stuff. Is there anything else around NPCs that you think is important or that you take into account when you dish one out to the in your games? Uh, the look... I would say, and then some of the motivation piece of it, you know, goes back to one thing we haven't really talked about is like when you get into negotiating with an NPC mm-hmm. and trying to like you try to play a social a social encounter without social encounter mechanics. And so, for example, there's oftentimes when we may play a game, you roll a die. You get a 30 on a D20 check, and you say, hey, I convinced them. You know, hey, I diplomatic him to death or intimidate him, so he has to give me the information. And there are some times in life where people just will not divulge shit, and they will take it to their grave, and they will die over it. But, you know, you rolled a 30. So I think not getting into this a little bit, but there is a, I mean, some games just do not facilitate that very well. And so I talk about like motivations about the non-player character, what they may provide to the players, what they may not provide and why. And maybe that becomes a plot point too. Like not even a plot point, but why, why does Joe Snuffy, Jane Snuffy, Supply the info, but not all of it, not all of it. And then there's something else and you find out somebody else knows it. I mean, there are so many things that could be like, 
we like we touched on briefly. If you had a two player game and people just I go find a blacksmith. Oh, the blacksmith thinks you're really nice. And then they invite you to dinner and they go to dinner and you have a whole night conversation with the blacksmith and you know, his or her family. Blah blah blah, and they talk about the politics of Waterdeep, and, and that can be a blast you, if you have the right group. Right, that is like that is like amazingly fun if you've got the right group who loves it. You're right, and then you meet the family, and then they've got their kind of characters and characteristics and quirks and voices and their own little motivations and whatever that looks like, and, and it just goes on and on and on. It can get crazy. <laughs> I think. Um, I think, though, the main purpose of an NPC is providing the player characters with information. Either inform- even by withholding data, they're still providing them with information insofar as that this data is either important to that person or secret or something. There's, there's something, you know, there's knowledge that even if withheld tells you something. So that's, sure. one, of the, that's one of the reasons they're there. They help to expand the world and the plots. Even dropping hooks and all that good stuff. Don't go crazy. Don't look at everything from those wonderful modules and try to ape them or copy them in some way. Do the bullet point thing, I believe, is a good way to start. If you find that that's not enough for you, because that's how we do all the shit in the in Game Master World, right? We trial and error the hell out of it. You're like, wow, that, uh, that dozen bullet points Brett told me to do, that wasn't enough. I need a page. Write yourself a page or write yourself options that you can and keep that shit because when you come up to the next blacksmith and you have five different personalities it might be handy to be able to have some of them on file to uh, pull out when you need them you know so you don't have to come up with everything on on the spot but anyway and the other component of course is you've got to know your gaming group some people are into the talkie talkie they want very verbose npcs with amazing personalities uh that takes a half hour just to get to the point much like when i talk or uh, they might want to be more like Sean and say, yeah, man, that's good. And then they move on and they're done with it. So, Yeah, the barbarian is not going to like talky talk. Probably not. More smashy smash, facey face. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Well, let us know what you think about what you think about this, as always, because you men and women who listen to us have some amazingly good insights. Let us know what you think. I mean, I don't – it's goofy. NPCs, everybody knows about them and whatnot, but everyone's got – different ways and tools and tricks that we as game masters use to make those NPCs in our worlds more useful. I don't want them to just be window dressing. I'd like them to be kind of useful in some way or another. So if we hit a point that you thought was cool, let us know. If we totally miss something, which again is highly probable, let us know that too. And uh, we'll add her to the list. Yeah. Get into die roll. Two to four miscellaneous points of gaming and geekery inspiration we want to bring to you Brett, go ahead, my man. Yeah, so I found this. Eric Tenkar, um, supporter of the show, uh, posted up that Warhammer Fantasy Role-Playing 2nd Edition is in PDF. Link in the show notes to that. Love me some Warhammer. I had to make sure that Mr. Roger Brasslett and Timothy Stone and uh, Mo Toussaint, some other Warhammer fans that I know, got into that. So, uh, link in the show notes. That's pretty damn cool. 2nd Edition's a good game. Um... The bonus Hobbs and Friends zine from the contest that uh, we and Jason Hobbs put together 
is out. Link in the show notes to where you, where you can get a hold of that for it's like a buck ninety five cents, I think, is what it is. If you're a patron of the show, I have a copy of it that will be winging its way to you all shortly. So if you're a patron of the show, you'll be getting that as part of the end result of the contest. And last but not least, um, listener of the show, and I want to make sure I get the name correct here. Do 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 do. Where am I? Where am I? Where am I? I had asked about the um, Hobbit Tales game that I had mentioned. Sean, do you remember who brought this up? I completely It's forgot. under the notes from episode 150, so gamingandbs.com forward slash 150 down in the it? comments. Is that it? Okay. I'm going to have to find it. It is that. Yeah. So Crim fan and another. Yep. Why don't you find that for me and I'll tell, I'll tell the story. Oh, <laughs> oh my God. I'm outsourcing. Um, so here's the deal. Uh, Hobbit Tales by Cubicle 7 is out of print. I happen to have two copies of it because I'm crazy like that. Um, I found one in a store, a uh, regular gaming shop, before it went out of print. And then when I found it, it was going out of print. I went to Noble Knight, found a copy, and ordered it. So you can find them on Noble Knight periodically, eBay. People will be getting rid of them um, there sometimes. Um, I am not willing to part with either of my copies because both my kids, uh, my younger kids love it, and I'm going to end up giving one to each of them at some point. So I can't do that, but feel free to uh, peruse one of those fine venues, and they may well be able to help you out. Did you find out who it was from? Jeff. Jeff. Thank you. Good Lord. Thank you, Jeff. Anyway, that's the deal on Hobbit Tales. I'm hoping maybe they'll uh, re-put it out. I don't know if it didn't go over well or if it didn't sell, whatever, but uh, it's a hell of a fun game. I really like it. All right, enough out of me, Sean. Why spinning hobbies like D&D into dollars is the new side hustle by Jack Howen. So he kind of goes into doing things for extra money. And one of those things happens to be GMing, DMing D&D. Somebody put their ad on Craigslist and... Will Game Master for money. Great. Well, you know, I've, con- I've considered doing it just to see... That is an old, old saw, an old chestnut that's been out forever in the hobby. That I, I remember back in the 80s um, in Dragon Magazines and people talking about how come we don't charge people, we put all this time and effort and blah, blah, blah into developing and putting all this word, work into it. I think some of it spawns from those lazy fucking players. I put all the work into it. I should get paid to do this thing. I'm providing all the entertainment. I personally think it's horseshit. Um, well, come on now, man. If you had a, a birthday party and your kids wanted to play D&D and you didn't know what the hell it was and you decided to go online to go with this old D&D thing is and you found somebody that was like, you know, it's like hiring a freaking clown for a birthday party. They're going to come in yeah, and run a four-hour session and show you how to play D&D. Yeah, you got to be different than me because I would never do that. I wouldn't hire a clown either. Clowns are creepy. If my kid well, wanted to run, if my kid wanted a thing for the birthday party that I didn't know, I would go research, do the thing, and then present it. That's just how I am. But I get it. Not everybody's I, like you, though. I know other people are weirder than me. I know. Um, it's strange. It's very how strange. Come everybody is not <laughs> like Brett. <laughs> Please write in. No, don't, don't, don't write in. Don't do that. Brett at gamingnbs.com. This is why I'm not like you. You dumb shit. Um, <laughs> I get it in a in a way. Um, I don't know. I think there's there's some weird things that could happen because, you know, what happens when I think you suck? Do I get my money back? This blows. Give me back my 20 bucks. 
you know, what, what's the contract look like on that? You, you can't, you can't eat the steak and not pay for it. Yeah. But halfway through, I can send it back and have them give me a new one. I can take a couple bites and say, this sucks. I think you got to set the expectations correctly. And frankly, you know, be reasonable. Like you're going to pay, I mean, you're going to charge somebody 5,000 bucks. Yeah. They're going to expect certain things. If you're going to charge them, you know, 50 bucks an hour, eh, maybe it's not that big a deal. No. I just I can't I can't do it. I do it because I like the hobby and I like doing it. I would never charge people for it. I'm gonna hire Brett. <laughs> just I honestly, if you wanted me to run it, I work. Everybody's got their yes. Well, everybody's got a everybody got their uh, price. All right, so <laughs> okay, read that article. Well, well, yeah, I guess at that point, then yeah. Anyway. Twitch partners with Wizards of the Coast for exclusive D&D content by Brian Albert. Um, so if you didn't get the notice on that, Twitch has partnered up with Wizards. They're doing more on Twitch. More superstars from Hollywood are getting into it, not just uh, YouTube stars. Um, it's going to be interesting. Like I, I, I think I might have mentioned this in a prior episode. I think the best thing that has happened with D&D in the last 30 years well, maybe not 30, because they did market the crap out of it. They had cartoons, and Gary, like, DM'd Hollywood actors and actresses back in the day. But I, I genuinely think that the marketing piece and kind of putting the stuff out there on Twitch is their thing, like branding it, licensing it as a brand, so they don't have to put out a book every two weeks or no, every month. It's, it's a brand. It's a license. I get it. You know? Especially with today's media, like there's a weird there's a weird thing that happens. It's not like it doesn't happen anyway, but the the backlash of oh that's popular, I now hate that. <laughs> you know, right, right, yeah. Oh, popular people I, do that. I want nothing to do with that's, it. Fine. That's hipster. That's hipsters, man. I, I gamed when it wasn't cool. Exactly. Right. <laughs> anyway. I talked about I talked about D and D before there were podcasts. Of course you did. Of course, right. Uh, and lastly, for me, N. Philip Cole, or NPC on G+, has a podcast, Have Movies Will Game. Um, I'll have a link in the show, note that is, show notes that is to the YouTube version of that, but he, I think if you go to HaveMoviesWillGame.com, I believe that's their URL, um, check that out. He pinged me and asked me uh, a couple things, and so I think they've got four all lined up, and they just dropped like episode zero on that so yeah another one to add to your feed uh putting us down further in the listen damn it you i know right oh well it was bound Again, to, it was bound to happen i can't say we influenced uh and philip but if we did it's just another one where people are like god damn it these two yahoos can get on there every week and do that fuck i can do that right. it can't be that hard Look at this. Like, what are you doing? Sitting here listening to us. Go get a microphone, plug it into your computer, hit record. You know what? Because awesome. you know what's gonna you know what comes of it? <laughs> millions of dollars. Of course. Millions of millions. podcast dollars. Th- millions of theoretical podcast dollars. Fame and fortune, my friend. Absolutely. Awaits you. All right. Uh I will do the listener one. Go for uh, it. John John Hammersley. Uh, kind of comments on 150, but he, I, I put it in die roll because I, he mentions a few products. 
So Mega Dungeon discussion is not complete without Rapan Athuk. Uh, it's called the Dungeon of Graves for a reason, and it's a meat grinder. So while Adventure Town, trademark, isn't that close, there is an outpost you can use to rest, uh, which is called Zelker's Ferry, but it's not much more than a blacksmith and an inn. Uh, the why and how where are the why, how, and where are well explained. The Kickstarter version includes a number of hex crawl encounters to keep you busy and level you up. So this is a great example of pulling the bits and pieces you need out to use elsewhere. Uh, in other words, Killer Mimic in the, I think it's instead of IE that should be EG. Killer Mimic in the latrine that has mutated into something even more horrible. Uh, the Pathfinder Swords Pathfinder and Swords and Wizardry versions are available in print and PDF. And we'll have a link in the show notes. Yeah. Good stuff. Yeah, good stuff. Absolutely great stuff, man. What are we talking about next week, Brett? You got you got it queued up again? Or are we uh, are we sliding behind the curve? Or are we well, I'm a little I'm a little bit behind. Um, we've got some really good, uh, a couple of good things from listeners. One of them is we have a listener who is talking about get, had been out of gaming for a while, wants to get back into it. You know, tips yes. and tricks around that. So I'm thinking, yes, I'm thinking, Michael. yeah, I think that might be, Mike. I think that might be a good one to hit because especially with Game Hole Con coming, and um, I mean, we used to say Cotton. You know, fuck, Gen Con is like really, really soon, but um, I think it. I think that'd be worth talking about. So it's kind of the getting back into gaming. Um, I, as I've said before, and other people have said as well, it's the golden age of gaming now. There's so much stuff out there, but the downside of so much stuff out there is where the hell do I start? It can be kind of crazy, and the answer isn't always. Oh, just go pick up the Dungeons and Dragons starter set. That's where you start. It's not always that way. No. So I think it's definitely worth us talking about that. So, yeah, it wasn't it wasn't Mike. Mike was one of the individuals yeah. that I know, Rigsby, who had bought got we're going to get back into hobby, but it was somebody else that had recently brought it up um, that really kind of poked and said, "Hey, how about a show about getting back into the hobby? I've got I'm buying books, but I haven't taken the leap." Yep. And that yeah. Well, we'll sum that up. We'll just do the show right now. Ready, Brett? Ready. One, two, okay. and we're just back. Can't. Just game. Just game. Just do it. Do it. Where is it? Where is Shillabouf? Where is he? I don't know. Get on it. Do it! There you go. There there it is. There's the episode. It was Evan Harrison Cass. I mentioned it on our Twitter feed. Oh, that's right. That our... our, I mentioned it. I'm back in RPGs in January. Still haven't gamed yet. Online might be the answer. Options, tips, and so on. So, Evan... He supports the show. He's a patron. Yeah, we're going to take your uh, topic, Evan, and see what we can make out of it. Man, he may be worried because of all the shit we've been talking about. <laughs> he might be like, oh, my God, they're talking about NPC quality? And, oh, Jesus Christ, I don't yeah. even know if I want to do this hobby anymore. It sounds terrible. Evan, maybe you just need to hit stop, buddy, and play, <laughs> and then come back. Exactly. Don't let us, like, dissuade you. intimidation. No. Yeah, dissuade. That's it. That's exactly the word, dissuade. All right. Well, let's get this. Like, hey, this person's been listening for a while, and we should let them go on to bigger and better things. Absolutely. So we will end this show with I'm your host, Sean. And I'm Brett. Good night and good game and all. This episode of Gaming NBS brought to you with the help from the following patrons. Gordon Cranford. Hey. Michael Parker. Yeah. 
Curtis Takahashi, Christopher Lang, Soldiers of Misfortune RPG, Stefan Dragonspawn, Jared Rasher, Eric the Hoff Hoffman, Chris Steele, Evan Harrison Cass, Ron Blessing, Neil Benson, Rodrigo Beowulf, Alexander Auerbach, Wiz Static, Michael Drescher, Jim Fitzpatrick, Todd Crapper, Tony Sugarloaf Baker, Eileen Barnes, Marco Froelich, Ray Otis, Finolf, Christopher Gray, Jason, Old School DM, Misdirected Mark Productions, Roger Braslett, Todd McGowan, Graham Miner, Gloss Sailor, Eli Kurtz, Craig Huber, C.W. Mellencamp, Dan LaValle, Tim Shorts, Mark Tosaka, Brandon Barnes, Eric Tankar, Eric Corey Johnston, Lord Tentacle, Pure Mongrel, James Carpio, Not Caprio, Wayne Humphrey, Jason Hobbs Hobbs, Remy Billadeau, Jason Blaylock, Palladian, The Knights of the Night Crew, Tim Jensen, Sean Nicholson, Andy Hall, Eric Jeppesen, Mark Anthony Benedetti, Forrest Gary, Jeff Rademacher, Brett's Biggest Fan, Joe Swick, Kevin Lovecraft, and Christian Sexy Voice Sereno. For the cost of a coffee shop coffee, you could support the show for an entire month. Consider heading over to gamingandbs.com forward slash Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Thank you, patrons. Thank you, listeners. This has been a Litterbox Studio production. production.